Today on the Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making podcast, Brian Abernathy and Ben Seals unpack chapters 7 and 8 of Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. All right, let me pray for us and we will go ahead and dive in and let folks trickle in as they, as they may. <clears throat> uh, Lord, we thank you for um, a day of life. And, uh, uh, Lord, just the reminder that in spite of whatever uh, this world throws at us, uh, you have eternal purpose for us, and you have uh, promises for today that are rooted in that eternal purpose. Um, and we don't have to worry about uh, the surprises that we encounter, the, the potholes and derailments, because none of them are uh, out of your knowledge. Uh, none of them are surprises to you. Uh, and so we pray tonight as we, um, as we take a look at uh, where our own selfishness and uh, propensity towards idolatry intersects with uh, life uh, every day, but particularly with work, Lord, we pray that you would help us just to remember that eternal perspective and that you would grant us uh, the ability to view and discern uh, the, the roles and the uh, opportunities and decisions we interact with uh, each day and, and the intersection of that with uh, your calling and your purpose and um, how we might continue uh, to strive towards sanctification and putting to death uh, the sin that is within us that we might be uh, more like you. Uh, so I pray for our time tonight, for our conversation. I pray that it would be encouraging and edifying to each one of us uh, and that we would be able to walk out of here with um, a little bit sharper clarity and a little bit brighter uh, understanding of uh, your call and your desire for us in the light of these things. It's in your name. Amen. Welcome. Do you have a book? I do not. There should be one back there, but they might have pulled all the books. Do you see them, Ben? Well, yeah. Um, they might be over in his office. Um, well, welcome. So we're uh, chapter 7 and 8 this week, and uh, just quick catch up. I know we had some folks out last week and some new folks tonight. So kind of where we are, this whole discussion is obviously intersection of uh, God's work and our work. We started out with uh, a review of God's design for work and the fact that Work is something that is not a result of the fall, is not here because of sin, but is something that uh, God designed into us because of uh, how it helps us fulfill being made in His image, um, and that there is inherent dignity for us uh, in doing that work. Uh, and then uh, two weeks ago, talked about work specifically, the value of cultivating and a service that we can serve others around us and that uh, we are like cultivating a field, doing work that is long-term um, and to have that mindset on the work we do. Uh, and then last week uh, we began to talk about uh, the problems with work, with fruitlessness and pointlessness. Um, and we talked about the first week how this conversation, like so many other things, is a story of, of the gospel. It's uh, creation fall and redemption, right? And that plays through uh, in our work. Uh, We mentioned real briefly that that plays through in relationships and so many other places. 
um, and just how that dynamic of the now where we're at, uh, fruitlessness, pointlessness, idolatry, and uh, selfishness of work uh, is real and is known to people that we interact with on a daily basis in our work and through our work and creates an opportunity that they can recognize and empathize with that I believe creates a reference point that we can shed light into how that can be viewed differently in that creation aspect, but also uh, in the ultimate redemption and that God didn't intend for our work for us or anyone to be this way and that there is an ultimate plan for work to be fruitful eternally and fulfilling um, but all in Christ. So it's a, I think it's a neat opportunity that uh, with that perspective we can use in our work and in those contexts to point folks to the gospel and, and to use it as a catalyst for uh, conversation about the gospel. Um, so from all that, uh, I'm going to guide us into chapter 7 um, and work becoming selfish. Um, and I love the opening sentence to this chapter, and I also hate the opening sentence to this chapter. One of the reasons work is both fruitless and pointless is the powerful inclination of the human heart to make work and its attendant benefits the main basis of one's meaning and identity, um, which has so consistently been a frustration and a struggle and a, and a uh, uh, ambitious... Um, trying to think of the right word, ambitious and arrogant factor in my life and my career. Um, So it's just a really good starting position for for the discussion we've got tonight. Thanks, Jacob. Um, So with the questions, I want to jump into some of the discussion questions. Um, But in starting with some of that selfishness, Um, I'm going to presume that I'm not alone in that uh, capacity, maybe even propensity towards uh, ambition and arrogance in work, right? It's very easy when we recognize that we're good at something to want to kind of take some credit for that, right? So uh, how have you recognized or do you remind yourself about the reality that you're not the one that has made you successful or um, good or whatever it is, but in the role that you have and that paradigm that, that God has given us gifts, he has given us opportunities, he's opened and closed doors to put us in whatever spots we have. And I love that we're going to get to talk a little bit about Esther in this tonight as well. Um, so just real quick kind of initial point, where do you recognize uh, that ease of maybe not rec- not remembering that it's not yourself, uh, and how do you combat that? Um, so I think that uh, most of my life I've been stuck in kind of retail and hospitality, very operational side jobs, um, but recently I've come into project management and program management for an IT company, and um, I've also learned about the Enneagram. And I've discovered that actually my Enneagram number plays perfectly into my job. And so I kind of just, whenever people tell me that I'm good at like what I do, I'm like, you know what? God made me for it. Mm. You know, he literally designed my brain to work this way. Yeah. Awesome. Anybody else? 
Ricky, do you get conversation opportunities around that, working on cars that a lot of people just look at and think none of this makes any sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Think back to like uh, I think it was chapter one or chapter two when it talks about like when you build a chair or something like you didn't dry the wood, you didn't cut the wood, you didn't do that. And I think you know the thing about like, hey, I didn't, I didn't make this tool, I didn't, I didn't <coughs> use make this program. Like I'm using this, but I didn't do very much of this at all. us in a uh, the dichotomy that we are like a lot of people think that you are everything right that we are feel what's most important mm. it re- reorients that relationship and it lets us really understand where we live and where we, where we are in this grand scheme of things and I feel like at times when my prayer life is, is more healthy this is this truth is way easier to digest that, that it's not here it's him and his gifts through me I'm able to do like his work but at times my prayer life is not is not what it needs to be or has not been what it was. It's easier for me to think that I did it. Right? And I think for yeah. me that's looking at my life and trying to pin on me. That's what I kind of found is that Yeah. So interestingly, I think it's um, I think it was N. T. Wright's a call to spiritual reformation, where he talks about um, the things that we pray in thanksgiving for with a great degree of consistency sometimes is a lens into um, our idols in a sense of the things of um, that that we're constantly thankful for and it's almost that like oh this is really important Uh, and so that's been I I read that uh, during the pandemic actually and it kind of just stuck with me and and hit me in a lot of this way around work, right? And, and specifically God providing for our family, which is a good thing to be thankful for. Um, and have uh, very similarly to you, Ricky, have just had doors open and opportunities to step into things that I really didn't have the credentials or the background for. And, uh, and then kind of like you, Beverly, just had the wiring to be able to excel and do well in that, not because of any prior experience, but again, just the way God set my brain up. 
Um, and then that in that bigger picture uh, sort of opened my eyes to just because I'm saying the thing, thank you, Lord, for how you provide for us, right? Like I try to uh, have, have had been, especially at that point, but I've kind of, this has changed a little bit of my approach with this, but always tried to be very clear in praying with our girls. Like we need to be grateful because the Lord has been abundantly generous to us. And that's not because of anything we've done, but then I would still so easily get caught in the other end of that. And so it was kind of a, the sincerity of that prayer. And I think to your point, the, the depth and the faithfulness and consistency in prayer from, a, from not just a lip service type of prayer um, showed me where I kind of ebb and flow in that selfishness. Um, and it is an ebb and flow in my life uh, in working dynamics. So this is a, a sort of fun and sort of not fun chapter to go through for those reasons. So um, with that uh, uh, question one here, how does the Tower of Babel illustrate the tendency to use our work to establish our own identity? And where does the brokenness of sin enter into the story? Um, you know, what was the work, the tower, uh, the intended, intended recipient of the glory? Um, where do you see that model of the Tower of Babel uh, work together? Let us do good things for our name. Um, how do you see that intersect in um, your life, your identity, the work culture that you're in on a daily basis?
this one team, they had had this particularly difficult customer, this project that got held up and held up and the customer was demanding this tight timeline. And people actually spent what was supposed to be their, their you know, holiday vacations with their families working and they were applauded. They were called out by name, they were given mm -hmm. kudos and accolades. I'm like, well, yeah, that, that's good for you, but like that kind of sucks for you and your family, right? Like you spent Christmas Day like working on your computer. Anyway, so mm. yeah, no, it's, it's totally like, I mean, it could have just been out of the goodness of their hearts that they just really wanted to help out, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the kudos didn't hurt. That's right. It's what gets, um, what gets celebrated is what gets the attention. You know, and and you can say that's not the culture you want in a place. But then if you celebrate it and spotlight it, everybody says, oh, that's what I need to do because I want right. Uh, like the, the guys on the tower. Right. I want my name to be in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. So what what was uh, just before the Tower of Babel in Genesis? Anybody remember what happened not long before that? The flood, right? What was the what was the command after the flood? It was to spread out and fill the earth, right? So all of this initiated from disobedience, um, in not going to do the thing that God had called and instructed them to do. And if you you can follow that all the way back to the garden, right? And it was subdue and have dominion over the earth. They were doing some of that, but they were doing it in a consolidated, disobedient manner <clears throat> for their own glory. Um, and I love that the way that the Lord broke it up was communication change, right? Like, I'm, I'm just going to make it where you can't communicate with each other. And, I, like, I don't think... I've never had this thought until rereading this this morning, but in thinking of work and the work of cultivation that God has called us to, I couldn't help but wonder, what if this disruption of communication was never inserted into the world by God? Because as we read it, right, God inserted the disruption in communication and these folks were like aligned. Sin was in the world, right? It wasn't pre-fall and they were, you know, they'd figured out how to make bricks and bake them instead of having to, you know, work with odd shaped stone, all this stuff. And it was just, uh, we carry that complexity and, and brokenness in communication in the work that we do even today. Right. And, um, yeah, just that really struck me this morning of, of how impactful our communication is how difficult it is for one. But then uh, as we talked about the bricks, right? He talks about that technological advancement. We today technologically have avenues for communication that you can like, you know, communicate on Teams or Google Chat or whatever your like work thing is, email. All of these ways to communicate that are so prone to misinterpretation to, oh, let me just shoot this off real quickly, and then the other person gets it, and you don't know what their last call or interaction was like, so they take it a different way. And it just really, that whole context really resonated with me uh, this morning because a lot of times in those miscommunications, it roots back to 
a dichotomy of, of wanting glory, right? You've got folks that want their name to be either made much of or not made little of, not knowing, again, what the context may be. Um, so that just really, really hit me um, this morning, and I thought that was worth sharing. Um, the second question here, uh, Keller talks about how there are two ways the people were getting their identity from their work, assigning spiritual value to the work that they would be better off getting from God, and not being scattered gave a sense of power and security from the size of their group. Are these still present in today's society? Uh, or maybe where do you struggle with or intersect with those two uh, ways of getting identity from work? Or another one, if another explanation of, of drawing identity is more applicable or, or connected for, for your situation? It's, it's so interesting to be a parent, right? So like the fear of man, you see that in our kids at such a young age, and you can't teach them that. They just, they like being like a part of a group at school. They like being a part of a group when they come to kid ministry. You know, it's, a, it's just ingrained from us at the very beginning. You don't have to teach kids to sin, they just do it, right? And what's interesting is like, as my daughter, my oldest now is seven, and I have a youngest one that's, that's three, but you can just see them feel so much they want to be a part of a group, the identity piece of that is that they really, really care about that from such a young age, right? You see that in politics, you see that you know, as, we're, as we're big kids now, right? Mm-hmm. In so many other areas as well. So I just think that it's it's so, you know, it, it, that specific sin is just so tightly wound around us and just our makeup that it's hard to kind of differentiate you know, the true identity piece from so many other areas of life. Mm. How core that is to some Every, every time I read this book, I get convicted that, like, the second question I normally ask people after how many kids they have is, what do you do? Because so much of our identity is wrapped up in the work we do, the job we have. And, yes, it's a big chunk of our time, and I haven't figured out, like, what to ask instead. But ultimately, like, it's so much part of our culture that it's kind of the first sort of, like, get to know you dialogue piece um, and it's just so natural because so many people do find their identity in the work that they've been given to do or called to what's the name that you're tempted to make for yourself in your work useless when everything's going good and like I'm not doing anything 
so, and I, I think you have the temptation to either kind of take a credit, take the credit wrongly for some of those things that are happening around, or just find some place that I can put my mark instead of just letting the people around you succeed and and like do great great things and stuff like that. So I, I think that's the temptation a lot of times instead of is just kind of committing where you don't need to commit um, and kind of just to either feel accomplished or or kind of make your name in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like that, like you're saying, like I think I think what you're saying is like you're always looking to compare yourself to somebody else. Like you always want to hear for me, like I want to hear that, hey, you're a better teacher than them, and like you know that's like okay, cool. Like I like you better than them, and so like you know that's to me, I think that's what I work for. I work for you know that comparison. Like I, like I want to be better than the guy next door. I got hit with that today. Um, we've had a uh, less than projected uh, success in achieving our revenue this year, um, particularly the months of April and May. Uh, and it had a meeting with our board the beginning of this month looking over projections and um, uh, updating them. One of the board members sits on the management committee with me um, and sharing those numbers. I said, hey, if, if, and he's a little bit of a fatalist, I will say, I'm defending myself, right? So this is not good. Um, <clears throat> but going into this conversation, the, the, the very beginning of this month, there was concern about where our revenue is and recommendations for growth put in place into last year that we were off track on. Um, uh, from a month-to-month basis. And um, in that conversation to our board said, we can, we can hit this revenue number in the month of June based on what we have projected. And if we do, and we hit these other things, um, we will be on track to be within 10% of our, of our projection for the year. We're, we're contract-based business, so we have lots of ebbs and flows. And we crossed that revenue threshold last night. And today I was like pumped, right? And it wasn't because of anything other than it proved that I was right. When all I really did was just look at numbers on an Excel spreadsheet. Um, But even in that, our prior CEO, uh, his failing was not making a decision. So to go back to the where's the identity, I have found myself and I realized it particularly today in that context as well as another. We had a team member resign Monday and having to triage that very quickly um, due to short notice um, was uh, I can fix the problem. So kind of like you said, um, I can step into the mess and come up with the way out of it pretty well on the fly but that is that is very much the place that I have found especially the last couple of weeks realize I'm I, I'm starting to cling to as an identity um, <clears throat> and the problem with that 
is then my value is tied to things being a mess, which is not good for me. It's not good for selfishness. It's not good for any of these other things, but it's also not good for my family, right? So when we, when we get that, um, that identity factor out of place, it kind of becomes a adverse flywheel, right? Um, it's, it's getting momentum and it's going, but it's not doing it in the manner that's God honoring or healthy for us. Um, so that, you know, that to me has, has just kind of been bouncing around in my head today. And this third question, it talks about too, uh, how does it impact your ability to serve others? Well, you know, in that situation, I'm better serving others on my team, those that I lead, if I'm able to prevent the messy situations. Because while I love them, everybody else doesn't, right? So um, it's just a really immediately slippery slope when that identity becomes about us. Uh, But it is so easy and it is so normal for what the, the business world is built around. I mean, a resume is a, it's an identity page, right? You're selling, and, and not to say that that's a bad thing, don't misunderstand, but that's a, that's a natural dynamic that is just built in to the working world. And it's, um, it's one of those things to go back to last week, we talked about that uh, not too wise and not new f- too foolish Ecclesiastes dynamic, you know? And it's the, it's the intersection of darkness and light, right? Where we know there's that identity factor, but we also know that, that there's shadows in that and we're called to carry light into that and kind of push into that tension uh, between those things. So I wish I could say that I thought that identity thing went away someday, but I think it's just, at least for me, it's like, it's like that thing that I have to wrestle with and it changes and evolves for sure. Um, but, uh, it's hard and it's hard, like you said, about getting called out on calls for, Hey, these folks, these folks threw their holidays and their family to the wind for the good of the company. Right. And it's like, yay. Right. But then it's when I get the opportunity to do that, you know, what am I going to do? I'm probably going to work the longer hours. So, um, it's, it's sticky. Um, I love, and uh, I think you started to talk about this comparison. It, at page 112 is what this says, which is probably a different page. I know it's a different page than my book because um, the hardback's different. But uh, this quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, now what I want you to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. Um, I mean, the questions here are just kind of soft toss, right? How do you see competitiveness of pride in, in the workplace and does it detract from serving others in your work? And, um, I like that is that's every day. I see that in my kids, right? Like it is just built in that comparison thing is so built in. Um, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic to be able 
to have a biblical perspective on that in leading a team and working with others when we can separate ourselves from that, even to a reasonable degree, I think, to to be able to kind of shift that lens for other folks, again, that maybe don't have uh, that biblical worldview. Um, but it's consuming uh, for folks. I, I mean, I have worked with some people who are just so consumed by, um, and I hope, I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like self-righteous in this. I've definitely been consumed by comparison, but um, by God's grace, have had folks who would share that with me, usually my wife, um, and and kind of shine a light into that dark spot. But um, I've just seen some folks so consumed with getting a title, right, or 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 being the best at X, uh, and it's. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to get a specific instance. I don't want to jump into details about a real person's life, even if they're in a different state. Um, but um, it's heartbreaking to see, right? To see someone who cannot receive the instruction, even when it is good hearted. I was talking to Ben about this on the way over here. I had a team member resign Monday morning um, who, for the better part of two years, have been trying to to invest in and help see the gaps and the things that they were missing on their own and kind of help them see some blind spots um, and the inability to take eyes off of a title change. Um, And, but what about fill in the blank of other team members? Every conversation of attempted correction and attempted investment and coaching and mentoring uh, from myself and other team members was a but what about and point a finger at somebody else. And I've been here this long. I don't understand why I don't have this title. And it was just a literally was an insurmountable scenario for this person and led to them resigning and going somewhere else where they got that title. And it's not to say that's a bad thing, but it's a, it's a hard thing to lean into, right? And to see somebody in that and it just like, I don't want to be that way. But at the same time, I know that I can be that way. Um, so it's, uh, it's complex uh, through and through. I think I just went off on my own therapy session and counseling. So I'll get off the couch now. It's been a rough couple of weeks for both of us. We were talking about that yeah. tonight. Um, so we got lots of examples of I'm newer to leadership at my company and I've really realized just how much of it is just like comparing each the people and just really like using that as a tool to try to get better performance. Like today we had a calibration where we literally we're just giving numbers to each of our employees and just trying to rate them. And they have like rewards and recognition every single month and then they have all the stats that they show like it's just all about numbers and getting better and promotion and it's just like ingrained in you and you know what doesn't happen in the in the professional world people do not stand up front and say this is where i made a mistake and i'm going to own my mistake and recognize what i could have done wrong or did wrong or could have done differently like that is so rare 
in the workplace, not even from an upfront standpoint, but like how many times have you had a conversation with someone? One, so if you're leading people and you go to someone, how often does someone say, that, that's 100% on me? I, I messed up here and here and here, and that's what led us to this spot. Um, not often, right? And that's not on your performance review either. How well do you own your failures? You know? Boss. Yeah. What were you going to say? Um, I think it's in a, a future chapter where um, it talks about, or maybe it was at the beginning where it talked about the, um, the line worker in the auto shop that's just dipping parts. And that's all they do, right? We have mechanized work to the point where it is the least possible repetitive task. And then we measure it and we force rank people against it. And like we're more than that as people. And even as, as leaders, we have the opportunity to be more than that as leaders. And to say, yes, performance matters, right? Like you've gotta hit a goal, you've gotta set priorities, but we're also leading people and like, being home with your family on Christmas Day or whatever matters, mm. or not always being on call and not always answering your phone and not responding to emails at all hours of the night because you need to catch up. Like that stuff matters. And setting those tones and examples and boundaries, then um, some of us have more opportunity to do that than others. But even in a, a small team or a small organization, you have an opportunity to say, like, Hey, your family matters. Go home, right? Or you got. Yeah, I, I love the story of how, um, you know, the, the the one person who wasn't a believer made a mistake at work, and the believer covered for him, and took that mistake as their own. And when they were like appalled by it, mm-hmm. the boss was like, "Jesus took my mistakes, and this is an opportunity for me to do that for you." Like shared the gospel in a tangible way. And so I, I think mm-hmm. it's. I'm a very numbers-driven person. Um, I, was, I was on a conference call the other day and literally told a group of leaders in our organization, if you, I, I don't care how you feel, put it in a number. I said that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. A lot tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> I was being super sarcastic. Um, but like we measure a lot of things in our organization. But at the end of the day, we also care about our people. And we give away vacations and we do things that show like, they're more than just a number. But I'm really comfortable with spreadsheets a lot more than I am with people's feelings. Um, but it's, it's mm-hmm. finding that balance and um, having people around you, whether it's, you know, there, there are people that I work with who are a part of our team because they've got to balance the quantitative side of me with a little bit of like subjective people skills that I don't, uh, uh, that I don't possess sometimes. So. And it's knowing those weaknesses and by the grace of God, not leaning too far into those potential strengths that can become weaknesses um, and seeing people for what they are. And it's more than just a productive unit, Mm. right? And giving them glory and giving the Lord glory and who those people are. So, Um, We're writing the business reviews right now. So I've spent 
half a day the entire week looking at every individual manager's performance and talking about numbers. But one of the things that we do is we talk about their people. And I'm always, they're never prepared to talk about their people, but I always ask about their people. Because that's what matters more mm-hmm. than their numbers. So, um, no, that's good. Um, I love that Esther comes up in this because we're, we're going through Esther, right? A um, little bit of Cliff's Notes version of the intro in the chapter. Um, but it talks about, uh, as, as we've talked about in, in the last several weeks, right? Esther didn't exactly uh, find herself in a situation to intercede on behalf of God's people by obediently submitting to God's will and proudly wearing her faith and her um, uh, heritage on her sleeve, right? Um, but it is, as I think was the last sermon on Esther, you know, the for such a time as this, right? Like, maybe the Lord has you here for this reason. So um, I'm curious if there were any interesting or different perspectives that stood out uh, in this look at Esther and Mordecai and, and that whole scenario differently than how we've been working through it in church. Cause I think it's at about the same, the, about the same place in terms of, uh, in the book. So any interesting eye-opening things about Esther coming across differently? And on top of that, what palace are you in? It talks about finding yourself in the palace for a time such as this. What is the palace that you're in and where do you have an opportunity to serve? I think for me, like, and it's kind of the same with church, I don't know if serious but no one, but I think uh, too often when I read these biblical stories, I think, think about a hero. There's only one hero in the Bible. If you're reading it, so that you're reading as multiple heroes, and you're reading Esther as a hero, or you're reading anybody else as a hero, then you're reading the Bible wrong. I'm like, man, like I have. And mm-hmm. so, like, I think just kind of look at Esther as more of a human, and not like you know a myth or wow, look what she did, and saying wow, like she was, she was messed up. Like wow, but she's not some heroine. Yeah, he's not here this week, and I forget his name, but the guy that sat over here last week and asked about how our decisions can impair God's will for our lives, right? So we see the example in Esther of you might legitimately do and and choose to follow through with the morally compromising things and still find yourself in a place where the Lord uses you where you are obviously not an excuse to go pursue those things, right? That, that would be misunderstanding, but um, the Lord's ability to redeem shows itself again and again and again. And that's um, it's true in, in the work in the palaces that we find ourselves in. Um, yeah, I thought that the last couple sentences kind of at the very end of that answer, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm work with talents you did not earn, they were given to you. You went through doors of opportunities that you 
did not produce that is open for you. Therefore, everything you have is a matter of grace. And so you have the freedom to serve the world through your influence, just, uh, just as you can through your confidence. Oh, that was pretty, uh, to start with that section, but that was pretty, pretty good coming off of the Esther piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, like, I want to, being in the middle of Esther, and, like, I haven't shared, and Brian, you kind of talked about the first week, like, you had been laid off, um, and, and Brian, you know the story because you helped me through it, but, like, to that end, in August of 2018, my wife and I had our fourth kid, he was two months old. And she had asked me, I need you to look for another job. I need you to stop traveling. I was working for Cardinal Health, traveling all over the country. We had four kids under five. Um, I was gone two to three weeks a month, and her ask was find another job. So I started looking for a job in August. Um, finally got connected with Thomas I Group in October. Went through nine interviews. It was the most like ridiculous interview process. It's January of 2017. Cardinal Health finds out that I'm interviewing for another job. I was a site leader here in, probably shouldn't use their name, but um, I was a site leader here in Johns Creek. Um, and, it's, and, and my boss at the time, since he found out I was looking for a job, fired me. Perp walked me out of the building. I didn't have a job, didn't have, I didn't, like, didn't have an offer, didn't have anything. I had a couple irons in the fire that I had been like stoking for a while, trying to get something to come through. That was a Thursday. I, I walk in my house at two o'clock. My wife's on the floor with our seven month old at that point. She was like, what are you doing home? I'm like, well, you don't work and neither do I at this point. <laughs> um, like that was a pretty humbling day. Um, and I remember sitting out on our back porch like, praying like God like you obviously are in control whatever um, Thomas I group reached out on Saturday the HR manager was like I know we've been dragging our feet we've been taking a while but we just felt like we wanted to get you your offer this weekend and she was like it's coming you'll have it here's the information you'll have it you know and she sent it to me I was sitting in the sanctuary when the email came through the day I start the CEO resigns. Like I wasn't the leader of the organization. I made a lateral move because I needed a job to go from 
Cardinal Health was homicide was running their call centers for him. The day I started, the CEO resigned. They called me into the office to meet with one of the managing partners. And he was like, why don't you come to our next board meeting? And a year and a half later, they promoted me to an executive director. Like, in the palace for such a time, not my intention. The Lord had it all worked out timing-wise. And there are so many other gifts of grace along the way that put me in positions where I didn't deserve to be. <clears throat> and didn't have the skills or the title or the experience to be there, um, except for the grace of God. And so um, it can be tough getting fired. Uh, that was a rough experience um, with four kids, but the Lord's faithful. Mm -hmm. um, and, he, and he always has been. But it's hard in those moments, too, not to be selfish or to make work an idol either. Mm -hmm. uh, the key in that perspective of viewing from God's grace the same team member who resigned this week um, who was not happy with me in that it's, it's a whole different point um, could not see flaws always pointed to others the first week I worked for the company I work for now um, had an interaction with a client that she was on the call for and got off the call and she called me and she said, you were way too gracious with her. I was like, well, I've been showing a lot of grace in my life so I can very easily show some to somebody else. My second day on the job. Um, and this woman that from a client was a lunatic, right? She was crazy. I was too gracious with her, but, <laughs> but no comparison to how overly gracious God has been to me. So when we come at where the Lord has us, where we've been brought, with that mentality, it makes it easier to think of that work as service mindset and realize, hey, I'm here to do something and it's not just whatever the job may be. Um, it's, it's more than that. Um, but we've got to view it that way and we've got to come at it that way uh, with that sense of humility or we're never going to see those opportunities. We're going to find ourselves like the, but what about so-and-so? And I want, you know, I want my time in the spotlight. So um, that power of God's grace to drive that humility and service is, is a huge, huge factor in that. So idolatry. Idolatry. Um, so chapter eight, this should be fun. Uh, work as an idol. Um, I don't know if anybody else struggles with this one, but uh, this one comes real easy for me. Um, but, you know, I think the, the thing that stands out to me, uh, you know, primarily about this chapter is just how many different ways work can scratch that itch for us that treats it or, or tempts us to turn it into an idol, whether it's for the need of approval or success, or fame, or growth, or education, or um, affluence, or provision. Like there are so many different areas where um, our, our nature is wired, and then our culture supports us, overemphasizing the value that our work can uh, deliver for us. Right, and so I think, you know, I think you mentioned like. Our position in prayer is the is the primary combatant to ensuring that work doesn't 
become an idol in so many different areas. And I think that that's the struggle for me is that it's almost like whack-a-mole. Like if I think I got it under control in one place, first pride, um, but then it's always something else, right? I'm, I'm chasing, like I'm, I messed up on a project or I made a bad decision and I'm worried that I'm gonna lose my job because I'm worried the Lord's gonna provide for me. To which my wife is very gracious to point back to the previous story and remind me that I don't have the job that I have now for my own striving. Like it was the Lord. Um, but there's always some area where you're like trying to spin plates or juggle balls and it like they're always out of whack. So um, as you, uh, you know, the, the opening part of this chapter talks about um, a CEO uh, of a technology company um, who's in the midst of a transaction and um, nothing is better than a good word, like a good rebuke from mom, right? And, and so like when, you know, just hearing those words like that his mom talked to him about, like, when's it going to be enough? Like, how much do you need to accumulate? What, what rung on the ladder do you need to like click off? Like, and when's it going to be enough? So, um, you know, how does, how does the opening story about David um, illustrate the kind of idols that Keller means in the book? Um, what are some of David's idols or perhaps even your own that are reflected in David's story? What else? It almost seems like he has, you know, an excitement thing. Like, you know, he's he's getting even after just I don't know how long he was with this um, this company that he's leaving, but like it just seems like you know the the thrill is gone. You yeah. Know? So I think that's um, uh, that is a real propensity, and like I, I'm um, to translate it into like to check a project off or to get a task complete, or you know he's he's doing a multi-million dollar deal, which sounds stressful and glamorous and whatever, and and it can be, but it's specifically relatable to like fixing a car, right? It's it's a task that has to be done. It takes a lot of skills and it takes some experience to do that, but it's no different than trying to teach the stupid sophomore kid how to do algebra two. Like that success is, that's probably more of an excess than success than this guy selling another business. Um, but that's so relatable, right? Just that constant chasing of adrenaline, right? And we get, we get like addicted to that adrenaline from email to tasks to checking a box to getting stuff done to solving a problem like that constant chase for another hit or another bump of i got it off my to-do list like that's a huge idol i think and it's it called dopamine seeking actually <laughs> people do that like 
Yeah. So for me, fixing the problem, right, um, I have to rest by, I don't say have to because I think that's probably me believing a lot. Um, I look for rest in just fixing other problems, right? Like I'm going to go fix whatever at the house, or I'm gonna build a tree house for my kids, or whatever, that's my, I can accomplish the task, I can fix the next thing, but at the same time, this is a constant tension with, um, just relationally for me, uh, specifically with Starla, when she's got frustrations with things, and she's sharing feelings. <laughs> what are those? Exactly where this is going. <laughs> I'm like, I can fix it. I can fix that broken thing in you or over there, whatever it is, but it's discounting, right? So that whole, that whole thing of where we find identity, it, it, at least in that area for me, it clearly manifests in work, but it's not just that. And that's kind of that pervasiveness of sin, right? Where that thing that's in us that leads us towards the idolatry or whatever, um, it's in us everywhere. It's not just in us at work or at home, or at or whatever it is, uh, or at the gym, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what it is that I, I, I can probably, with a, with a few minutes to think about it, almost everything I put myself to doing, I can find the way that that comes in, because that's the thing that I chase. Uh, and it's not Jesus, right? Like, that's the, either he will be our God, or something else will be our God. Uh, there is no in-between possibility of having gods at all that we rely on to save us. I mean, I, I listening to you guys talk, and like I, I thank God that I never f like fell into sales, because I would be like that emotional wreck of a sales guy who's like chasing the next deal, and if a customer tells me no, I'm gonna like fall apart, and the world's gonna end. Um, like I, that affirmation to me is a huge deal. And so I'm glad I can employ salespeople who get the sales done and get told no. And then I just get to ask them why they're not selling more um, or what they need to sell more. So what other idols for you guys? Interaction last year. Um, so I think for a lot of companies, recovery after the pandemic was sort of an all hands on deck. Uh, our team reduced in size. Uh, pretty notably, and so as we're coming out of that, getting busy again, I had a lot of work on my plate, was working pretty consistently in 70 plus hour weeks. Uh, and so every night of the week, I would stop, eat dinner with the kids, put them to bed, and then go back to my office for two or three hours. Um, and I walked downstairs one night saying, to say goodnight to Starla, she's watching something on TV. Uh, and I said, well, I said, this is not gonna last forever, like this is seasonal, and we can get help in right like um, and she said well it it's clear that you're enjoying yourself so at least you're having fun right and I was like yeah yeah and I kind of took some pride in that right um, and then a couple of months ago it was the same place and she was like you're not enjoying yourself anymore uh, and literally right now listening to this it's when I enjoyed myself it was still an idol 
right? Like, so we, we get these places where the idol's there, we're, we're, we're sacrificing at its feet, but if we like it, it's still bad, yeah. right? Like, it's still an idol, it's still not good for us, it still wasn't me having good rhythm and margin and Sabbath in my life, it wasn't, um, yeah. it wasn't healthy uh, to any degree, but I could write it off as it was a season. And granted, those times do come, and you, you know, long hours are, I'm not trying to say long hours are bad, but. So what's the idol in that? I could fix it. It was me, I mean, we were, our client services department staff had cut by 50%, um, and our volume had returned to more than it was right before the pandemic, and I was carrying it all. And so it was, I could fix this problem, I, I got it. Um, and I did. But I was not sustainable. It was not healthy, right? So, uh. I think the the challenge is what is what we call seasonal. Is that us believing that we're the only one that can do the work, and that it has to be done at the time frame that's on the piece of paper, right? Or do we? trust the Lord enough to say, nope, not going to fight on Sunday and trust that we're still going to win the war. Right? And... Yeah, I think that tied in the pride of last chapter. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, I'm the one that can control this. Yep. Yep. Right? Yeah. I think that's where, like, the, you know, a couple wise old guys, right? Like John Allen, we talked about the mortification of sin. It's, like, to be killing sin. Yeah. It's, an, it's an active verb. It's not yep. passive. You're not ever going to get towards the Lord. It's be killing sin, to be killing you, right? So it's like, that's what's like freeing about it. It's like, guys have done it a lot longer than I have. There's still that, that struggle. And it's a constant, you've got to continue to be fighting this stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, it's. Um, look, I, these two chapters are very intertwined. Right. I mean, selfishness and, and, and being selfish at work is, an, is a potential idol or it is an idol um, or seeing ourselves as the only um, solution to a problem at work. Um, technically speaking, like if you and I were in a room, you'd be the only one that could fix a car. Like I'm worse than Anson. I can maybe pop the hood on my car. Um, and I just call Brian because he gets a dopamine hit out of fixing it. So we'll figure out what's going on there. Um, but there's like there's a there's a risk in like we're we're all taught at work like I can do more, I can do more, I can do more. It's the productive productivity thing. Like it's how many of us are teaching our kids that? Yeah. Right. Like it's not just work. I said the first week the first thing I remember getting praised for as a kid was doing a good job at working in the yard. Yeah. So it's not accidental that fixing stuff and working is where I am prone to find my identity. Sorry. Um. No. Um, so how, uh, I'm going to skip to a, a couple other questions, so we'll, we'll kind of bounce around here a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I think about, you, we all work in very different workplaces. So I recognize that Northside is different than Thomas I Group, is different than Convergent, is different than a car repair shop. But ultimately, like, they all have a culture 
in that place. As you kind of think about the, uh, he talks about traditional, modern, and postmodern cultures. And I think, you know, being, being in Atlanta, there's this sort of this melting pot of cultures. Like, I don't think it's just one, like postmodern or one or the other. I think it's kind of a hybrid. So what do you see as your um, culture that you work in? What are the aspects or idols that are made much of in your organization? Is it more traditional, modern, postmodern? Um, is it quantitative? Is it? In my company, we have core values, and I would probably say that values is idols, right? Mm-hmm. We kind of measure ourselves quantitatively, right, against those. We measure our community against those. Right? So, um, How do those compare to? a healthy biblical view of work. Teamwork, continuous improvement, work-life balance, performance. Um, some of them may match up. Yeah. Okay, right. But I think that um, also ones that you need to praise for going above and beyond, you know? Yep. I, um, that whole movement is really unique from, from the other side as well. Um, so, you know, the, I shared in the first class, I work for 14 doctors. So there are 14 doctors that own the company that I work for. Uh, but ultimately I'm the senior leader over the entire organization. This year was the first year that somebody asked me, what are we doing for Pride Month on my leadership team? And I'm like, okay, well, we get to tackle this one now. Um, And I remember being at that former large corporation that I mentioned before where it was like they took down the Georgia State flag and hung a rainbow flag outside of our building for Pride Month. And I was like, and we had some very conservative Christian people who like took a lot of offense to that. And it's where's that balance and how do you not be passive, but not support sin and walk a line of what's my role here. And I think that takes a lot of wisdom and it takes a lot of discernment and prayer. And um, I don't think, I don't have a cookie cutter answer. Um, I had to have the conversation Friday morning with our manager at the committee meeting, not about that, not about yeah. Pride Month particularly, but about our inclusion, diversity, equity, and access commitment that I inherited from our prior um, leadership. And um, my response, it was, and this is consistently my response, 
because I, I do not work with many believers. The ownership group that I work for are not believers and are very different worldviews and don't like each other because they're all greedy old men even among themselves. Um, but it was a, we cannot as a company do anything to change this. So it, yeah, we've got a statement because we need a statement for some reason because somebody decided it should be on our webpage and in our proposal. Great. Who cares? The fact that that's printed on a webpage or a piece of paper is not going to change any dynamic of any person's life. All that matters is how I as a person treat other people. And I believe that each person has intrinsic value because they're made in God's image. And that's all, that's, that's my idea statement, right? Is it does not matter what evidence of brokenness or pursuit of sin might be prevalent in someone's life. It's present in everyone's life. Just the manifestation is different. So I, I try do get very frustrated with some folks I work with, uh, but I try to maintain that mentality, and that's kind of what I step back to. Because again, like we, I get clients all over the country that have political views all over the place on all kinds of issues, um, and it is a the way that anybody asks me brings it up. The way that we drive this forward is the way that I interact with the next person I interact with, and do that in a manner that reflects our core values. The first of which is put people first. So I'm like, cool, I can get behind that, right? Like we can, we can stick a flag in the ground around that, except for maybe people aren't quite like first, first, right? Like biblically, worldview wise. But I can think to do what's best for the people that I can interact with on a daily basis. And maybe it has not done this for me, but maybe that creates a context for a conversation of questions about well. Why do you approach it that way? Where do you have that mind? You know, if, if you believe people have intrinsic value for some specific reason, what's your basis for that? Right? It could be. Um, I always hope that that creates a com- conversation that would go towards the gospel. It just hasn't yet, in my experience. So, and I think um, the challenge is, and, and so ERG is a postmodern situation, and maybe it's not necessarily a postmodern situation, but ultimately, it's this action that companies feel they need to step into because society hasn't conformed to their expectations right and that's the idol that's another idol right it's just they wouldn't couch it as an idol of like freedom it's more of you know it's just the social justice movement that they're engaged with at that point in time so i think it's you know and trying to tie it back to the chapter like even erg can be an idol whatever social justice movement can be an idol that people pursue and use their work as an outlet to release support or engage in that idol. Um, And so if that helps in any way, um, look at the issue and and understand like, this is that there are people that are very passionate about whatever thing um, and how we you know, sort of steering guide that in work and how we, to Brian's point, can we really affect this in our job or not? Um, you know, the work that I do doesn't have, we provide eye care to everybody. Um, doesn't matter who they are. Um, we celebrated everybody in our organization this month, not just particular segments of society. Uh, and, and so, um, I don't know, that that's a thorny one that I think is going to get 
more and more vocal and harder and harder um, because it's it's expected to be promoted and celebrated and lots of companies are you know using it as an opportunity to market themselves and promote themselves and people see it as more social than marketing but it's the capitalist in me sees it as a lot of marketing um, so um, as you sort of, as we wrap up this evening, I'll bounce to the last, last question. Um, four ways that the gospel offers hope for overcoming idols. Um, so this was on 149 and 150. Um, does anybody remember where, what those four ways are? So the first is the gospel provides an alternative storyline for our work. It's not, you know, the it's not an evil that we have to do until we achieve out of it, like the Greeks thought. It's not a point or um, uh, a means of our fulfillment or our identity that's only found in Christ. Um, it is a portion of what the Lord has created us to do and fulfill. Um, it allows us to partner with God um, and His love and care for the world. Uh, and it gives us um, a sensitive moral compass and then radically changes our motives. Um, the gospel changes our motives for work and the, the things that we strive for.